Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum, brothers and sisters. Welcome to Al Hadi's The Breakdown. My name is Abbas Ghulam Hussain, and today we are discussing the topic of stress. Before I introduce our guest today, we are joined by our first female co host. Please <laughs> very, introduce yourself. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Uh, my name is Anissa Morali and I'm really excited to meet our guest today. Uh, inshallah, we'll be talking about some very prevalent issues. Um, yeah, so if you'd like to introduce yourself. So I'm Dr. Hamid. Um, I work in psychiatry. I'm based in hospitals, uh, various hospitals around London, I'm currently based in South London. Um, and I work um, at the moment with patients with severe mental health issues, <clears throat> predominantly severe depression excuse me, psychosis, um, bipolar disorder, and we see a range of different things. Um, and obviously once people become better, you kind of monitor them in the clinics to see them when they're not so severe in their presentation. So inshallah we'll be able to discuss a few things that come up which relate to stress, emotions, um, and mental health problems. Awesome, thank you. So before we get into uh, the discussion, the first question I'd like to ask you then is, what really is stress? Is stress itself a bad thing? Is it inherently a, ba a bad thing or is it inherently a good thing? It's obviously something that we all experience in our life. So um, what exactly is it? So stress is a response that your body has to um, basically a stimulus that's beyond what you can handle. So stress in itself is not a bad thing. It's a, it's a way for you to motivate yourself and to push yourself to get things done. Um, but when it gets to a certain threshold where your capacity to deal with the task does not meet the actual task um, load, then that's when it becomes quite unbearable. Um, so as long as you are able to increase your skill set so, for instance, if you need to study for an exam and you haven't studied, you don't know the material, you're going to become stressed. If you know the material, that skill set, that knowledge will be able to surpass the level of the burden. Um, and so, and then you'll, you'll have a bit of a balance there. So it's, if you look at it as a graph, you kind of just need to increase your capacity um, and your skill set and your knowledge in order to overcome the burden or the challenge. Um, and that's where you find your happy medium. Awesome. Um, so, stress is something we all experience, um, but recently there's kind of been this, this rise in the people who obviously, every, everyone is stressed, as you say, but people complaining about the stresses that they face. You know, I've got uh, some statistics in front of me. 74% of UK adults have felt so stressed at some point to the, to the extent they feel overwhelmed or unable to cope. So that kind of stress, how is that different to the day-to-day -day stresses that we, that we will be facing? How is that different, that one? Well, I mean, stress can be created in your mind. So expectations create stress. So it may not be necessarily that um, you have a particularly difficult task in front of you, but rather, um, I know we were kind of discussing this uh, briefly about social media, um, but having expectations which are unrealistic, um, needing to get a house at a certain age or a certain job or a certain car or a certain status, that will create stress within your mind, even though there is no actual stress in front of you. Uh, so that would account for that 74% of people who are, um, I'm assuming this is for first world country statistics, where people are trying to meet certain expectations, which may be just unrealistic. Mm -hmm. anything, to, anything to add? <laughs> okay, um, you just touched on social media there, and that's something that really I personally wanted to talk about when we talk about this podcast, and also, when we asked for questions and asked for comments about this podcast, a lot of people brought up social media. 
Now, it's something that um, obviously I'm, I'm quite young, so I've grown up with social media, um, you know, going straight into secondary school, getting a phone, getting uh, Twitter and WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. Um, one thing you realize is that people tend to post a lot on social media, but people tend to post just the good aspects of their life. And so for many people, that uh, they're sitting there and they're looking at all these different people, all their friends posting the good aspects of their life, and they're sitting and thinking, oh, my life isn't that great. Is that something that plays into the stress uh, later on? Is that something that could also be linked with anxiety in young people? Absolutely, yeah. Um, it is statistically shown that um, social media has a negative correlation with mood and anxiety. So... The more you invest in looking at other people's pages or, you know, celebrities or other people who seem to have it all together, um, the more likely you're to be, especially in females, more anxious, more depressed, more self-critical. Um, so it is important to self-regulate who you are following, for instance, if you're on Instagram. Um, who is it that you idolize? And uh, it is very important. I mean, nobody has a perfect life. So if you're sitting there thinking that everybody has, you know, a shiny bedroom and all these gadgets, um, it could be the other side of their life where they're absolutely miserable in the relationship or they've got, you know, a health condition that's untreatable. You're, you're only seeing a very small portion of that existence. Um, so it's important to take that with a grain of salt and to think about, well, you know, you may be blessed, for instance, in physical health, in your mental health, in family, in having friends, and that person on Instagram may only just have shiny things. Is Are you willing to trade those things off for one for the other? Mm -hmm. I think it's easier said than done sometimes, though, like when you're sitting there, I think, on your phone looking at people's perfect lives and uh, the impact that that has on you. Is there anything else that we could be doing apart from, obviously, rational thought doesn't come in that time when you're looking and you're thinking that, oh God, why does this person have this all put together or why are they so perfect and why am I going through this? And I, I think it, it goes, anyone can relate to this at any point of their life, whether they're a student or whether they're a parent or they're just getting married in any aspect of your life, you go onto social media to see, okay, how is it done? How is it done perfectly? And when you can't achieve that perfection, it really does have an impact on you. So what, <clears throat> what else can we be doing to kind of help ourselves I mean we can start from like the youth and we can maybe work our way up to so if you look at someone for example um, a student who's studying for their exams and that, that you know someone's posted on Instagram wow like I've got 10 hours of revision done today and you know I'm on it I've reached these targets I got an A on my last mock exam like what what can we be doing to help um, them let's say well I mean on a practical level I realize there's ideals and then there's reality so, I mean, from a, a reality point of view, if you do know somebody who's getting, you know, A-stars and everything, why don't you just go study with them rather than look at their <laughs> Instagram page um, or make a study group, yeah. um, do practical things which will lead you to get to your goal. But staring at somebody who is getting these grades isn't going to get you the grades, of for instance. Um, and it's at the same time, I mean, if we're going to look at it from an Islamic perspective, the value of a person isn't about all the accumulation of their wealth or their uh, status or their presentation. It's, it's about the quality of the individual. So perhaps people should start thinking about personal development because it is personal development that leads to successful people. Um, it's just that you don't see all the hard work behind all of that, all the photos or all the presentations that you see ahead of you. Uh, so I, th I do think there's a, a huge gap in people reflecting um, reading, say, autobiographies, uh, 
looking into self-development material, which makes them better people. And in effect, they would be role models themselves. Uh, so that inward work would be much better use of one's time. Uh, and if it is something specific, like you want to be a great chef, or there's nothing wrong with like looking on YouTube and learning how to cook or learning how to you know, decorate your home or dress better. But if that's getting to a point where I would say pathological, where it's affecting your mood, where it's affecting your ability to function on a daily level without feeling bad about yourself, then you need to cut back and maybe don't check your phone maybe delete the app for a few months until you can self-regulate because that's really having a negative impact on your life. I suppose that, that's true for uh, people who are a bit older, maybe past their teens, 20 to 30 years old. But for, for young kids who get their first phone, probably when they get into secondary school, so at 11 or 12, they'll be getting their first phone, they'll be getting social media, they'll get all of the apps, they'll connect with all of their school friends. How do they regulate? Because they're, I mean, you know, I don't want to sound cliche, but at that young age, you're not really into self-development, are you? So, and yeah. also there's that <coughs> huge fear at that age of um, missing out, of not being, up, exactly. keeping up with the Joneses, you know, all my friends have this, and if they, they won't want to delete it. There's no thing of, there's no um, within yourself to think, okay, let me better myself, or let me, yeah. um, I have a little brother who's 11, and at the moment we're struggling with <coughs> the whole addiction to uh, Fortnite, you know, I want to be online, mm -hmm. I've got work to do, but actually I want to be playing, um, I want to be able to talk about it with my friends at school and uh, we're really struggling to kind of teach him that actually this is not, um, you know, the future. The future is not this, so... Um. Yeah. Well, I might, I might end up seeming like I'm jumping a bit, but um, I guess the 11-year-olds are not going to be happy with this comment, <laughs> but I personally don't think an 11-year-old should have social media or a phone um, because they don't have self-regulation. And, and it is scientific evidence that the brain doesn't fully develop until you're 25 so you are an adolescent that's so interesting until yeah. you're 25 years old and you will not have the full regulation um uh, to stop yourself from doing certain actions to the same level as somebody who's you know in their 30s for instance that's so interesting that you said 25 though. that's 25. such a late age you would think that it would be at the age of 18 when you give no. a child like a full independence to go and live their life no like. because we do see a lot of the time is that once people go to university they you know they may become completely disinhibited and you know try all sorts of things in that age group of like 18 to 21 or 22 and then they kind of start settling down closer to 23 24 um, That's true, yeah. Or they might be completely confused about who they want to be or what they want to do with their life because they haven't gotten to that level where they've fully matured and fully understand um, who it is they are and how to how to fully use themselves in a capacitous way. So um, speaking about that age group, it, it you can't blame an 11-year-old for being on Facebook Definitely. all the time. I think parents need to take a bit of responsibility and say... You, now that they're in high school doesn't magically mean that you don't regulate how much time they, they have on the screens, on their tablets, on their video games, because in effect that that time is replacing time to grow their brain. <coughs> Definitely. That's quite interesting you said 25, because I myself am only 20 years old. <laughs> <laughs> we won't trust anything you say. <laughs> it's a process, it's a process. But you will find that you might think um, quite differently in five years' time. Not, not, you're not a completely different individual, but you will re reflect back on your ideas and think, well, that was a little bit immature, or I could have done better decisions. But that's fine. That's fine. To, because if you don't make mistakes up until that age, um, and you make those mistakes at 30, then, then that's a different issue. People aren't going to really give you um, any leeway. 
uh, when you get past that age. So yeah, they'd be like, well, what's your excuse? <laughs> yeah. um, so you said that it's not a case that when you get to secondary school, parents need to now take a step back. That's, uh, that's certainly what I, I guess the assumption is among, among parents. You get to secondary school and now you're a bit older, you can kind of look after yourself. But where would you say that age is then where the parents can now take a step back? I'm assuming because you said uh, you don't think an 11 year old should be having uh, social media or be playing these kind of games. So you would be you would be an advocate for, say, parents limiting the use of these kind yeah, of things. Like I so. said, there's ideals and then there's reality. And um, and, and and if you completely restrict, you know, that age group in a society where it's completely normal um, and they won't be able to communicate with their friends and they'll be um, socially outcasted. You obviously don't want that as a consequence. Um, so you do then have to limit screen time. Um, for instance, you know, they have it at school for a reason because you need to pick them up and they need to be safe. Mm -hmm. But then at home, you know, between 6 and 8 p.m. or whatever it is that the family can agree on, it's, you know, this is time for you to grow as an individual and for you to do your homework, for you to socialize with the family. And the family needs to not be boring. Right, you can't. You can't. You can't you expect to stimulate their mind. Yeah, and exactly. You have to, be able to do fun things. For take them. them out. Go do something interesting as a family or with their friends. Be an advocate to take their friends and do sports or something creative or rock climbing or whatever it is that's interesting to that child, rather than say, well, "Why are you playing video games?" Well, they're, they're bored. Yeah, that's definitely. why. And interesting, oh, going back to your question of us, um, you know, the, the Islamic perspective of how to raise your children, <clears throat> so until the age of seven, um, they're your masters, and then until the seven years later, you have complete control over them. And then after that, <clears throat> they become more of your friend rather than you as a parent telling your child what to do. So if we look at from now, from the age of 14 and above, I think, is that is that a good time then for a parent to kind of step back and allow a child to start doing being independent within uh, choosing how they spend their time and what they're doing with their dates? I mean, you always have to give your child autonomy um, to be able to choose and decide. Even if you have a three-year-old, they get to choose what they want to wear that day um, because they are fully-fledged individuals and we can't restrict them. So it depends on each kid. Um, I mean, that uh, it is a good point, Islamically, from zero to seven, um, I, I, I was listening to an Islamic lecture recently and I, I really liked the way that it was described. So from zero to seven, the child is a king, but even the king has advisors, right? Oh, nice. So you don't force the king to do anything, but you, you, you know, they would gently suggest that the king do otherwise <laughs> without upsetting the king, right? So it's not to say that you're, you know, you're not going to harshly discipline that young kid because the whole basis is to build attachment and love and during that age. And then after that, they will be more willing to listen to you freely once they can, you know, actually understand what it is you're asking of them. So it's, it's about building that close relationship without it being harsh. But it doesn't mean that you're going to let, you know, a three-year-old, for instance, you know, dump water everywhere or make a huge mess, you give them another space where they can do that in the bathtub or in the garden and you allow them to express themselves, but you do it in a very guiding way. Um, seven to 14, you do discipline because they have the intellectual capacity to understand what you're trying to explain to them. Um, but again, it's not in a harsh manner. You're not, you're not using, you know, you're not hitting, you're not um, being aggressive, you don't need to raise your voice because if a child respects you, they will listen to you only to see if you if they see that you're not happy. That's enough for for a child who has a close relationship to a parent to to realize they've done something wrong and to yeah. say I'm sorry. Um, so it's important those first seven years to build a relationship so close that if you just frown, 
after those seven, 14 years, they, they take that really strongly <laughs> yeah. and they realize they've done something wrong and correct themselves. Yeah. Um, so 14 onwards, you do have to, you know, relax a little bit and, and, you know, let go of that rope. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you're not hovering, you're not advising, mm. um, you're not, well, hover is the wrong word. If you're not, you're not available to, to buffer when there's things that come up, but you do need to regulate. And it is to the capacity of the child. Some kids are a bit, you know, wiser at a younger age. Some kids, you know, they may not hang out with the wrong crowd. You're not as worried about them. Um, so they may have a few more freedoms than the other kid. Uh, so you, it really is selective. Even within the same family, children are different. Of course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I suppose while we're on the subject of uh, young children, we've talked about 14-year-olds as kind of around the point where parents can take a step back. Obviously, it's different for different children. But at that age, um, kids will start taking their exams. They'll, they'll start studying for their GCSEs. And I suppose nowadays, actually, uh, kids are taking exams a lot earlier than that. We have 11-plus exams, which are actually quite tough for the very children already. Very, very, very stressful. They're only, how old are they, 10 years old <coughs> 10 at, at the time? Years old, yeah. When they're taking those exams. So at that young age, they're already exposed to this kind of grueling examination structure uh, then we get to their GCSEs and as a child um, you're sitting there you're 14 15 16 and you're told okay you need to do well in your GCSEs if you don't your life is ruined that's obviously that's not in, uh, completely true but it is it's some of the things that our children are told aren't they especially They're within told. our community I feel exactly. us as co- uh, like coaches we're very very harsh on our children mm-hmm. um, to get the best grades that they can get because you know anything below an A is not acceptable to us and you know parents want to tell their friends that you know my child got these perfect grades exactly. that, that pressure that's put on your children is uh, like un- you can't even imagine it but we do it we do it, we put it on them. So I guess I put it back to you guys. Um, you raise that the parents are perpetuating these ideas, so who's, whose fault is it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not blaming an 11-year-old for being stressed because they have no concept of what the meaning of these exams are. It's, it's the parents who bring in meaning to every exam yeah, and every situation. So if, if you're being told that if you don't get you know really good grades on these exams, your life is ruined... The child's going to believe that, you know, whether it's true or not. And it's not true because there are so many avenues and so many opportunities to either repeat the exams or to, to you know, I, it depends on the child's skill set, you know. Um, and I know that very much within uh, our communities, it's it's very important to, to do certain careers. Um, but you do need to look at what your child is gifted in and, and nurture that. Um, and you know, if you do want them to do well in exams, there's different ways of doing that. Um, if they do need individual tutoring, provide that. But it doesn't have to be be all and end all, um, because they aren't going to perform well if they're stressed. Of mm. course. So providing that nurturing environment, that low stress environment, the the parents need to reduce their own internal anxiety. Otherwise, the child's just going to absorb it. So it's not the child who's getting the stress out of nowhere. Okay. Right. So it starts with the, the parents. It always starts with the family. Any any child who comes in, um, we, it's called CAMS, anyone under 18, is a different service for that age group. Um, and you're always working with the parents because the child doesn't develop behavioural issues or emotional issues by themselves. Mm-hmm. Very, very rarely. That's so interesting. It's, wow. it's, a lot of it is projected from the from family. The, pa- the parents onto yeah. the child. Wow. 
So it's it's more of a family based therapy. Yes, than, <coughs> absolutely. Um, and so, what about when we're looking above that? So, a child doing their A levels. So, obviously, the stress again is paramount. But the child now wants to do well mm -hmm. because they can see the future ahead of them. Universities in sight. They want to get into a good university. <coughs> so then you you start to see them putting stress upon themselves. Obviously, parents still want them to do well. But I I remember when I was doing my A levels, it was more me driving myself to want to do that, and it can you can sometimes reach breaking point because A levels are difficult. So what can we advise or what can we do to help these um, 18 year olds going through that stress I mean they're now now their exams are coming up in a few weeks <laughs> I'm very sorry for you guys. <laughs> um, it is a lot of stress um, and it's not enough to just say that stress is not helpful and to you know try to do relaxation techniques and various things I mean I can discuss very basic level if you're not taking care of yourself you're, you're not going to function optimally. So if you're not exercising every day, if you're not eating three times a day minimum, um, your brain is not going to be able to function optimally. If you're not socializing, you know, to a reasonable degree with people who fill you up and make you happy and comfortable, uh, you do have to make time for that. And you do have to have a, a, a regular routine where you are studying however many hours that you need to study. And and asking for help when you need it, um, if you need external tutoring or support from various groups or the community or the school. Um, and of course the family can always help with that. But at the end of the day, there are plenty of people who have failed and repeated exams and become gone on to become successful. I'm, I'm going to use very standard things like doctors and engineers and lawyers because that seems to be you know, quite uh, elevated in the community. Um, so if that's something that somebody's put on quite a bit of stress for themselves to try to achieve and they're worried, oh, well, if, 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 this, if there's a setback, if I don't do very well right now, I'll never achieve that. That's not a true statement because there are people who have done poorly and, and got back on their horse and, and achieved again. So it's, it's important to keep that in mind because when you take that bit of pressure off, you will function better and you will perform better ultimately. I think that's so interesting what you said that it's not the be all and end all of everything. Like uh, like you said, you can you can retake, you can there are all the other options, there are different avenues and um we don't like to think of it but when when everything seems to be falling apart, it's good for our, our youth to know that. I mean I mention that only because I see it so often, um and a, a lot of cases are come come in during that period right before exams and they well, well I need sleeping tablets and I need something really? to fix my mood wow. and you know I need this fixed now because I've got exams in three to four weeks and you're like well even if you had therapy for instance and you really needed it it takes time things take time so if, I would suggest that you need to start building yourself up leading up to A levels years of you know self-control and, and discipline and um eating well and exercising well and having extracurricular activities which take your mind off of study because it's not enough just to study. You, it's, it, you're, you're a complete human being who has needs in all facets of, excuse me, of life. Um, so waiting three to four weeks before exams to say, well, I need to be superhero now is unrealistic. Um, I'm not saying don't try, but I'm saying just if you have the time beforehand, if a younger group of people are listening to this podcast is you know, build that self up so that you don't have to be so stressed when you get to A-levels. Mm -hmm. I suppose that that's kind of for young people now who are maybe uh, 13, 14 to try and implement that in the next few years of their life. But then we're now at the end of April, this podcast is going out. Uh, exams are starting in the beginning of May, actually, for some. 
some will be in June as well. So that two months of, of exams for, for people who are 15 to people who are 21, 22. I myself am seeing some exams, my final university exams. And we have the added pressure this year and for the next couple of years during Ramadan. Mm. Where we're going to be studying during Ramadan. We're going to have to balance that spirituality with studying. Where we're going to... Um, I, obviously, I have experienced this before for the last few years. And um, you don't feel as spiritual because you're, you're revising. You don't have the time to perhaps just read du'as, read the Quran um, constantly. And that kind of adds into that stress level because yeah. you're, you're sitting there and you're <laughs> thinking, it's Ramadan, I need to be <laughs> praying and I'm sitting here doing work. It's Ramadan, I need to be reading the Quran and I'm doing some work. So what kind of tips would you give, perhaps practical tips, to people who are <laughs> studying now, got their exams coming up, also have Ramadan to look forward to? Or I guess not to look forward to, depending on <laughs> depending on the exams. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would say you can do it. Like you can do it. I think um, confidence is an issue, and having your mindset in the right frame of mind is very important. Um, personally, when I was studying, uh, I remember Ramadan was the best time to study because I had zero distractions. Um, yeah. For me, like you know, I, I don't know what it is about studying, but you constantly just want to get up and eat something. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so with Ramadan, you're like, well, okay, I can't get up. Um, but maybe you can incorporate your du'a in that moment or like, uh, you know, a few ayats of Qur'an. But the most valuable thing to know is studying is a form of worship. Exactly. So why, why are you putting extra pressures on yourself and extra expectations on yourself? It sounds um, very perfectionistic. And I think it's important to realize that there is a time and a place and moments for everything. And you do not need to be praying 100 salat per night if you can, that's perfectly fine. But if you can't, it's not mandatory, right? These are all mustahab means to come from mahabba, from love. So you should love to do the thing. So if you're miserable staying up all night to pray, I don't think God's <laughs> going to appreciate wrong. it the same way, right? Because it's supposed to it's supposed to relax you and make you enjoy the actual act. Um, I would recommend doing like salat in the middle of the night and doing qiyam al-layl when you can. It is It can be quite... Um, profound if you are doing it in a genuine manner and you really want to get something out of it um, because it, it, it's something about that period of time I mean across religions across races people do meditate at you know four or five in the morning they get up and it's a it's a quiet time it's a peaceful time um, and it is a spiritual time so if you can even do that once or twice it can have a very positive effect on on your outlook because these duas that you read, I mean, try to find, you know, maybe shorter ones or ones that really connect with, but it makes you realize that all these things that you're working towards in life, in dunya, are not necessarily as important as you think mm -hmm. they are, right? And it, and it puts your, your life in perspective and it calms you internally. Mm -hmm. um, I know that doesn't necessarily work for everybody and, you know, you always have parents going, you know, just pray and read Quran and your life will be perfect. Um, <laughs> But it has to come from, you know, from a, a personal desire to actually have that connection. So if you feel like overwhelmed and you don't know what to do and you're just on the brink of tears, you know, just read a dua, try to wake up and do some qiyam and see if that makes a difference of, of actually surrendering yourself to God and saying, I don't know what else to do, just help me. Um, and you may find some answers. 
Yeah. I think that's really beautiful. <laughs> I think definitely it's something our listeners need to hear because you forget, you forget that actually studying is a form of ibadah. You are actually worshipping Allah in that time that you are studying and there's no need to put that extra pressure on yourself to then do all of these. But I really loved what you said that, you know, when you do the du'as, that it is a form of relaxation in itself when you connect to God because that will help alleviate the stress that you feel towards your exams and you put your trust in God because you've done everything you can, you know, inshallah, you've studied you've done the work and then you put your trust in God and he's obviously he, he will always help us yeah. I think I mean yeah. there's a lot of du'as where it, it emphasizes the fact it's that you, you are in a weaker position than God mm-hmm. you know it's like I you know my no, my knowledge is deficient but you are the all-knowing and and that kind of thing so when you realize well I've put in as much as I can and God, you are the all-knowing. You are you are the source of everything. So can you please give me some of that yeah, source? Yeah. Um, because I am deficient, right? And and it's acknowledging that and being okay with that, um, and and then just seeking help. And that may be useful in you know the rest of the day and going. You know, I'm not a superhero. I can't be perfect. It's okay. That's that's just the design. And and. You know, maybe if I help someone else, they'll help me. Or um, if I if I give to charity, then God will, will reward me in some way. Like, you know, the world works in mysterious ways. <clears throat> so it's important to open yourself up a bit more than to just say, well, if it, every every question that I study is is going to get me that much closer to the exam. That's true. You do have to put in all the effort there. Definitely. But you need to put in the effort in other areas of your life as well and see that that, you know, what you give also comes back to you. And I think like what you said can be implemented to anyone, to anyone at any age, that kind of perception of that, you know, you are the, the servant and Allah is the master um, and the way that humbles you. And I think that that can help reduce your stress at any point in your life when you think like that, because I feel stress is you putting pressure on yourself to be this great, perfect person. But actually when you humble yourself and you realise actually your le- the level that we are at, I mean, you go into such that you realise how low you are. <clears throat> I feel that stress reduces in a sense because you gain perspective of your position in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, but you also yeah. realise that greatness comes in other forms as well. Yeah. So it's not just, you know, acing all of the exams. You could be a genius but lack in so many other ways Um, and it's not enough uh, to to just do well in those exams and um, even if you don't do well in the exams you know god doesn't measure you based on your score in a levels right he measures you on so much more in your qualities um and what you contribute and and who you are in your sincerity as an individual so um to, to understand that and to feel that and to actually believe that makes you a lot more confident in yourself to say, well, you know, for instance, the exams didn't go as well as I would have liked, but, you know, who knows, maybe the entrance into the program I want to get into is going to be slightly lower this year. You have you have no control over these things. You try your best, but you, you relinquish that need for control and say, well, whatever the best will, for me will happen. And, you know, if you're not happy, you can always go back and try again yeah that's mm-hmm. always an option mm-hmm. i guess it's all about having that faith that faith in god that tawakkul and i suppose it's it's a bit harder for younger people to to have that but i suppose as you grow older you do realize that everything is part of what god wants and he has put you on the right path to what you can do the, the best thing that you could do exactly yeah. um i know we do have to move on uh, we've been discussing this for quite quite a bit of time but um just to wrap up um 
on the, the exam side of things. Are there any other practical tips that you would give? So you talked about exercise is something, stepping away uh, during Ramadan, something you can do is actually take a break from revision and perhaps just read the Quran, read the translation of it, read the dua and kind of just try and connect to that as a form of stress relief. Are there any other practical tips you would give? I, I do emphasize eating well, um, eating well, only because people tend to think that... Junk um, food is the way to go. Well, I mean, I again, realistically, people are going to eat junk food, but at least have, have a solid meal. Like, if it is Ramadan, have a solid meal, have snacks if you're staying up throughout the night, have suhoor. Um, if it is outside of Ramadan period, make sure that you're having breakfast and all of these different things. And it, it sounds a bit redundant, but if you have a blood sugar level of four, you're not going to be able to operate at your optimal level, you will feel depressed because you have no energy. Mm. And a lot of the time people come in and they say, well, I, I'm depressed. It's like, well, are you even eating? You know what yeah. I mean? Like you can't have energy to get out of bed if you haven't eaten. Um, you will feel sleepier, you will feel more tired. Um, if you do have a physical health condition, if you have iron deficiency or thyroid problems, you know, go to your GP, just make sure that your body is actually, you know, optimally in, in check, take your vitamins. Um, but I would say that, you know, on a basic level, you are exercising in some shape or form. You are doing something that is physically a relief to get that pent up stress energy out of you. Um, and you're talking to people that relieve you as well. Or if it may just be an activity some people don't like to chat, they just like to read a book. That's fine, yeah. do your thing. You know, I, some guys just like to play video games and that's their relaxation. But just be strict with your routine so that you can get in the study as well. Okay. Um, you did just touch on something and that's something we want to explore a bit further because um, it's something that a few people requested we discuss. Um, you said some people come and say, I'm feeling depressed. And, and you said, well, are you eating correctly? So how do people then differentiate between actual depression, clinically de clinical depression, and just having a low mood where you're maybe just not looking after your body, for example. Yeah. What are the differences in that? So clinical depression, there's seven features of clinical depression. Um, I, <laughs> I, I know that people can also inflate that, so I, I, it, it's very easy to look up, but I, just to name a few, uh, you need five out of the seven in order to be diagnosed with mm -hmm. depression. Um, but even with that, I would... Uh, be cautious because it requires a medical professional to diagnose you, for instance, go to the GP and they can do this with you. Um, but that doesn't mean you are going to be prescribed a tablet, for instance. Um, it might mean that you just have mild depression or uh, it's, it's really early stages and what you need is to just talk it out with somebody. You could do talk therapy with a, uh, a professional or you could do with someone who's close and trustworthy. Um, but to name a few, it's, it's signs of your, your appetite being affected, so mm. it could be either increased or decreased. Your sleep could be affected, again, either increased or decreased. Every individual is different. Um, you might have thoughts about harming yourself, uh, ending your life. You can have poor concentration, um, hopelessness, mm. worthlessness, um, and, and a culmination of, of these symptoms would just mean that and it's not one of you know one one of these or two of these. It has to be quite a few of them to say, well, you are depressed, and it's been going on for a, a significant period of time as well, right? Um, and then that's when you would start to say, well, we need to do something about it because it's not going away, right? Uh, I would also say that if you're grieving, for instance, um, 
if somebody close to you has passed away, you wouldn't really consider someone that's depressed. You would give them at least, you know, a period of six to months to a year before you would say, well, this person's depressed because it is normal mm-hmm. to feel of course, lost yeah. and to feel heavy and to feel that burden after you've lost someone that you love. So um, I would say if you if you have a question mark as to whether you are depressed, go see your doctor um, and they can quite easily go through that with you. If you don't like your doctor, find another one because <laughs> that's a common issue um, and and discuss it uh, and go through the questions and, and find out if it's if it's a fact or not. But it's very common for people to overly medicalize and everybody just uses the term depressed nowadays mm-hmm. um, when really it's just that, you know, life can be difficult and the situation can be difficult, but the it will pass. Um, and it's, it's about that mindset of understanding that things don't come easily. And that kind of ties back to social media where it seems that everybody gets what they want quite easily, but really it's a lot of hard work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one thing to note is that life isn't a straight line. You have high points and you have low yeah. points. And so you just need to get through it, basically. get through it, realize that sometimes it is just uh, having a low mood. But if you do feel that you are depressed, please do, do speak to your GP, for yeah. example. I would say if it's a chronically low mood, it's affecting your ability to function um, and interact with others, then it, it, it raises a few flags. Mm-hmm. I feel like in our community, though, there's such a huge stigma that people would be scared to you know, I mean, we, we say it so lightly, yeah, I'm depressed, but actually when you went to actually clinically diagnose yourself as being depressed, uh, to have that mental health kind of stigma on you is um, people are very scared of that. And I would stop people from going to, I feel, to go to their GP or to seek help. They, you know, it, our mindset's trained to think, <clears throat> like like we were saying, just get through it, just get, you know, get past it. Um, but what can we, what can we do to help reduce that stigma a little bit i mean it's 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 hard to see that the stigma i can see why the stigma persists but these issues are very personal and i don't see why the community needs to know regardless okay you going to your gp i mean unless they're the head of the community um (laughs) shouldn't be an issue even if they are the head of the community i mean every doctor should practice confidentiality that's a requirement um but as I said, go to someone that you're comfortable with. If you feel like it's something really mild and you need like, you know, just mild advice like mentoring or life coaching or a stump, an older sibling or an older uncle, they might be able to guide you in a way which is, is enough. Um, but if you feel like it is severe and you're having thoughts of, you know, ending your life or you are self-harming, um, then it would be worth speaking to somebody who's, who's qualified and a professional and you don't need to let the world know and that's fine. That's fine. I, I mean... There are many people who struggle with issues and they get over it and they're high functioning and they're professionals um, and they got on with it. And there are those blips in people's lives where um, they can be very low and they just need help being pulled out of that hole and move on. Um, I can see the time. We are approaching 40 minutes, so we've discussed quite a bit. Um, One thing that I know, Anissa, you wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, was kind of uh, stresses of perhaps being a young parent, yeah. but also before that, also maybe finding your life partner, for example. Something you want to touch on? 
Yeah, I just think <clears throat> again, you know, after you, you've, it's the life cycle of our, our our community. I feel you finished your exams, you finished university. Now it's time to get married, uh, go find a spouse, and you know, especially for girls, I, I maybe not so much for men. You, you can advise any of us, but there's a huge pressure on your age, and as you get older, the pressure for you to get married. You know, you get told you're not going to find a good husband. All the good ones will be taken. <laughs> the older you get, the harder it is for you to get married, and that pressure is mounting, mounting, mounting. Um, I mean that stress in itself I've seen it on individuals it's enough to get you down it's, it, it really does affect you because you now you're thinking about your whole future picking a spouse means the rest of your life you're completing half of your, of your faith here and it means that you know the later you get married the later you're going to have children and all this plays on your mind I mean how I mean, can you're we... just making me stress <laughs> I'm saying it because I've seen it I've yeah, seen no, it I has the effect that it has on people and I've seen the pressure being put onto like girl, especially girls in our community to get married young mm. um, but it's it's not easy it's not easy to find your life partner and to of course, of course. I mean um, I mean I can reflect on that period and, and know how how stressful it is because of all of the things that you mentioned yeah. um, and I think once somebody does find that person and they're the right person they're eternally grateful because things can go very wrong in relationships exactly. and it can it can affect things um, but I guess Rather than to get caught up in that really black hole that you just mentioned, <laughs> I'm going to take a step back. No, because, but that is the reality, isn't it? That a lot of people internalize. Um, but I think we have to, we have to go back to basics and you finished university or you're in university and uh, you're interested in the opposite gender and uh, you have to think, evaluate with yourself. Do I know who I am? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, do I know what I want? Mm -hmm. Right. If you don't know what you want for yourself and for your future, how are you going to pick the right person? Very true. Um, yeah. I think a lot of people get lost because they're like, well, um, they want the fairy tale. Sure, yeah. sure. But I mean, like, it's very rare for somebody to, you know, stumble, drop their books and meet the perfect person. So uh, and what does that even mean? Because the concept, <laughs> the concept of love on um, in the mainstream media is is very. Um, how should I say it? It's skewed because I, I, I would say that's infatuation. When, it's if you, more if you, like lust. It's lust. Yeah. I mean, you, you see somebody, you like them, uh, whatever it is, there's something that attracts you to them. But that's infatuation because love, love is much deeper than that. You know, you could, you could really upset your parents and do all sorts of um, things to, to, you know, bring hell onto them. And they will love you. And that's, that's love, right? You know, you, you, you see people who look after, you know, their sick spouses who are going through cancer or all sorts of difficult things. Um, and they still have a smile on their face and they do it with joy. Yeah. And, and you think, wow, like, that's, that's love. love. Yeah. Um, love is another term that's very easily thrown around that um, is, is, you know, if somebody gets you flowers and chocolates, that's not love, mm -hmm. right? That's that's scripted yeah that's television that's you know it's very easily learned so, I mean they like you sure maybe um, but they don't love you right and if anybody says they love you within two months time or even a week's time then I would be highly suspicious <laughs> <Definitely>. <laughs> so love takes time sure. so that that's one thing is to have the right idea of what you're looking for um, and I think girls and guys I again we're gonna get the male perspective here but um, they have very different concepts of what they're looking for and what they're expecting and girls might be like, oh, well, you know, 
this guy isn't affectionate and isn't getting me, you know, roses and cards and, you know, showering me with love, quote unquote, yeah. um, it's, we're not right for each other. <laughs> <laughs> we're not a good match. Um, I, I, I will get your perspective. What, I don't know what guys are expecting. But, um, uh, it is important, like I'm going to at least list some things that are necessary in a relationship. It is necessary to be attracted to the other person that you're marrying. Um, that is actually one of the requirements within our religion to, to have that attraction. Mm -hmm. um, and it's also necessary to look at the akhlaq of the person, so the character. Um, and that's even more particularly important if a girl's looking at a guy because in these relationships, if you have somebody who, who does not carry themselves in... Um, in a respectable manner, they're not going to treat you right. Um, and it's important to have that self-respect and to know that your bare minimum is to be treated with respect, right? And then obviously you need to build on that. But if you have somebody who's from day one um, speaking to you in a rude manner or uh, to your family in a rude manner or to his family in a rude manner, that's a really big red flag. <laughs> then you're, you're definitely not going to be treated any better than the way he treats his mom or his sisters. Yeah. Um, then then you need to kind of take a step back and say, well, this is not the right person. So you have to have standards for yourself, which is, you know, this person has is respecting me, respecting me and respecting others and carries himself in a dignified manner. Um, you know, there is that level of attraction. And then there's the extra stuff, which is, um, well, obviously, and then I obviously need to include Dean, but I kind of bring Dean and Akhlaq together because if somebody is not at the same level of your practicing of religion, um, then there's, that's going to bring mm -hmm. issues down the line because you won't have a medium to be able to communicate when things go wrong, right? Yeah. That's your fallback. That's uh, if somebody, you know, starts to drink alcohol and you have no, you know, respect for that, that's going to cause problems. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody who doesn't pray or doesn't, you know, respect what the Quran has to say and you are somebody who does that's going to cause problems, you know, especially when it comes to children and that sort of thing. So you need to know yourself yeah. and find somebody who's compatible with that, if not slightly better to make you better. Um, and in that sense, you would be able to be comfortable in your own home. Um, and then after that, that's why I say you need to know yourself. And, and then that way you're finding somebody who is not, you know, exactly like you, but has, you know, is going in the same direction as you. Uh, somebody who has goals, for instance, or has aspirations, who, who, you know, you have to discuss these things and it can be very taboo to bring up serious matters before marriage, but you do need to know whether this person wants children or not, mm -hmm. um, whether they, you know, are happy for you to continue in your career or course, not, yeah. whether you want to live with your parents or not. Very basic things, which are huge issues when people come for counseling and speak to me. Yeah. And, and it's just like, well, you just didn't talk about it. And, and think, it could have been avoided. And I think, yeah, probably the main thing to take away is to tell people then it's not an easy decision to pick your spouse and it's not something no. that can be rushed into. That it takes careful thought, mm. careful... And you ha like you said, you have to know who you are and what you're looking for. Mm. And uh, it's not something that can be rushed into. And you well. can't change the other person. <laughs> I should mention that before. Yeah. You cannot change yeah. the person you're marrying. So to say that, well, they're going to stop smoking when I marry them, it's that's not, not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Even if they love you. <laughs> they don't love you that much. Even if they genuinely love you. It's, you know what I mean? So you take, what you're getting is an as-is package. If you like it, the person as-is and yeah. they meet your requirements, go for it. If there's any doubt, take your time. Yeah, ask more questions. Yeah. You know, ask people who know them. Um, get your family involved. 
I, I have seen many issues with people who try to get their family out of the picture and they regret it later. I know that's a hard thing to hear, but it is the truth. Um, and there are rare events where things can continue, but it, they are rare. So get more people on board so that you can see the whole picture. I mean, I've been staying kind of silent on this. I don't, know much, I don't have much experience in marriage. Uh, but one thing from, from the male perspective is that there is that added stress of now you, Islamically, are responsible for, for another person. You Financially, you have to provide for them and then in the future for a family. Mm. And so that, that's, that's quite stressful. That's quite daunting on someone young. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you're, you're told to get married um, young. You're told to get married early. If you're getting married at 21, 22 You'd only have been working for one year, maybe one and a half years. So that's something I think off-putting for a few a few guys that are my yeah. age, a bit older, in terms of getting married. I think I think that's a not a male issue. I think that's a community issue mm-hmm. um, on expectations and dowries. And I've heard some yeah. really ridiculously pricey dowries, <laughs> yeah. um, which I. When you see the divorce later, you kind of wonder, was that was it because of the, the high down? <laughs> I don't know, but it's fishy. Um, so you, these these expectations that you know, if a guy comes in um, and he's a decent guy, he's a good guy, and the girl, you know, likes him, and they obviously click, and all the you know everything is great, and then the family goes, well, you know, you haven't graduated yet, therefore you don't have this Job, this salary, yeah. um, and then it's just like a no. I mean, if the family is really concerned, because as a parent, I can understand that perspective a bit more now. I can say, well, give the guy a chance. Give him some time. You know what I mean? There's so many feet, like. there's, there's so many avenues. Like, sure, he could be somebody who is dishonest or is not intending to, you know, actually fulfill what he's saying. But then there are guys who are. And mm-hmm. if you give them a year or a year and a half or whatever it is to finish their degree and get a job and stand on their feet, you know, obviously give them some time to even grow within that profession Mm -hmm. um, and support them, you know, even if it is financially, right? If the couple is really thinking they're that good of a match and they're willing to stay with the family, you know, this is getting much more complex in terms of the discussion, but I'm saying there are options, right? Because it's much harder to find the right person than it is to, you know, find somebody with money. (laughs) (laughs) Because somebody with money may be abusive. Yeah. Somebody with money may have very poor akhlaq or uh, I mean, and, and or somebody with money may be great, but not everybody has money. So mm-hmm. we need to be reasonable in our expectations as well mm-hmm. on, on the guys who are coming in and, and give them some slack. <laughs> <laughs> Does yeah. that take the pressure? We are approaching the end of the podcast, um, but just a, a final point of discussion for young parents who they just yeah. become parents especially young mothers the stresses that they face now um, yeah because I mean once you've had a baby I mean your first like we, we were just talking a little bit about this beforehand uh, once you have your first baby I feel you're very much supported because everyone's very excited for you you've had your first kid your child especially as a mum uh, having personally gone through this um, and obviously all the hormones rushing around you're going to have your ups and downs you're going to have some really low lows and some really high highs I think but you have that support system in place um, but what I what I feel is that when you have your second child or any more than that um, 
uh, people kind of, you know, I get told a lot personally that, you know, oh, you know what you're doing. You've, ha you've had a child um, and uh, you kind of get left to it. Uh, but even though things might be a little bit harder and um, it, it's very, and as a, as a parent, you put a lot of stress on yourself again because of um, everyone's expectations upon you, your expectation upon yourself to be like this perfect parent to your children to instill all the islamic values all the educational values into your children um that i mean the stress is paramount like you know to you're raising these tiny little humans to become perfect and you want the best for them uh and it can be it can be very difficult i mean for a mother and for a father i can i can say i mean the pressure is immense I mean and I think throughout like the podcast we've spoken a lot about about how a parent puts pressure on their children and how they um, we need to talk to them and how we need to they will help alleviate the stress of their children and but now now we're the parents <laughs> and we're putting that pressure on ourselves yeah I mean a lot of people think that parenting will come naturally and um, uh, I, I don't believe it does I think it's learnt um, and the other thing to know is that the, the saying that it takes a village to raise, you know, raise yeah. a family is very true. Um, so whether you have mm -hmm. one or five, or it's a, it doesn't matter. Like even one child, I'm I'm really glad to hear that you had a supportive experience with your first child, but that's yeah. not that's not, not common either. Yeah. Um, you know, some people don't have extended family or um, many friends, or or they may be you know new to the community or whatever it may be, yeah. um, and they're very isolated. Um, and that's where you get things, uh, not necessarily, but you can get cases of postnatal depression, that sort of, of thing, because there's so many pressures and, and a lack of support. Um, and I think with any pregnancy, with any childbirth, with any, you know, you know, the year or a year and a half after having a child, you need very, very close support and very close monitoring from loved ones because it's very easy to fall into that overwhelmed state. Um, so if, if somebody's having two children, they have a toddler and a young baby, that that's chaos. <laughs> that is the description of chaos. Um, and even if a mother, you know, carries herself in a way which makes her seem like she's got it all together, she's definitely never always having it together because it's not possible to do so. Yeah. Um, and it could possibly be one of the hardest points in, in people's lives. Um, and I remember reading this where it was, uh, I believe it is around the seven-year mark that a lot of couples have uh, marital issues. Okay. Um, and, and, and I guess that's, uh, that's the general statistics from, from you know, the whole society. Um, but that reflects on the fact that many people may not have children right away. I know in the Islamic community mm -hmm. we may have children earlier, but in other couples they may wait for a period of time of being together before they have their first kid. And, you know, seven years might be around the point that you've had your first, second kid. And that's a lot of strain on a marriage mm -hmm. yeah. um, because mom is stressed, dad is working. Um, and, you know, obviously dynamics can be different and vice versa. But, you know, traditionally speaking, in a lot of families, mom might be home alone all day. And then seven, eight o'clock, dad comes back, husband comes home and she hasn't had that support. Yep. Mm -hmm. And he's tired. So, I mean, you can't blame either person because he's trying to support the family financially and she's trying to keep it together. Um, but there's only so many nappy changes and tantrums one can deal with in a day. Yeah. So if somebody does have family, friends, um, anybody <laughs> who's willing to help out, even if, you know, and if you have the financial means to get extra help and to have somebody come in and to clean in whatever once a week, once a month, um, just try to make things easier for yourself. Try yeah. to have meal 
meals ready for yourself, mm-hmm. frozen meals, have backup plans yeah. for those days where you feel like you just can't handle it anymore. Yeah. Um, uh, so so I, I completely acknowledge how difficult it is, but I would say um, if the community can get on board with this to have support networks, that would be quite useful. Um, if the mom can try to, to be do as much as she can or the dads can think, okay, well, it's the weekend. Sure, you can, you know, have your time, but think that mom needs her time to survive. Um, If you're not insisting on, say, taking at least, you know, a couple of hours in the week for yourself, Mm -hmm. for at the very least, you know, going and doing whatever yoga or swimming or whatever it is for yourself, it's not sustainable. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. you kind of have to, moms have to... Take care of themselves. Take care of themselves and stop being... Or thinking that they can be superheroes because, it, again, it's a false expectation. Yeah. Okay, so thank you very thank much. You so much. Thank you very much, Dr. No Hamid. Very, very insightful. And uh, hopefully a lot of people have benefited from this podcast. We are coming up to an hour now, so for the two people still listening. <laughs> um, just, for, just before we end, um, we do have a competition running uh, at Al-Hadi Youth. We are offering a uh, £30 voucher for Baskin-Robbins in Hatch End. So uh, if you do want the voucher, and if you are one of the two people who are still listening, you, I guess you've got a head start on this. Um, all you need to do is uh, tag a friend on the podcast post, which will have the, the poster uh, for this podcast, and uh, follow Al-Hadi Youth, and get your friend to also follow Al-Hadi Youth. Um, thank you very much for listening, and once again, thank you to Dr. Hamid. Yes, thank you. And we very much enjoyed the podcast, and maybe we can have you on uh, in the future as well to discuss part two. Uh, wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.